Let's turn in the Bible back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Last week, uh, I believe Brian Esterday preached and we were a bit out of order uh, because of a few things. We went from Tyson Lott preaching Matthew 5, 38 to 42 on retaliation and then it should have been uh, tonight's passage 43 to 48 to end chapter 5 and then it should have been Brian yesterday's passage at the beginning of chapter 6 but we got that out of order so Tyson preached from 38 on then last week Brian preached 6 1 through 4 and tonight uh, I am filling in for Joe to preach Matthew 5 43 to 48. This passage, like many in the Sermon on the Mount, is heavy. It's difficult. Christianity, real, sincere, authentic, faithful Christianity is rare. You know that. You're often discouraged by how insincere it seems. Let's just say that maybe most of it is not real Christianity. It's rare. True Christ followers are rare. Those who say whatever our God says is what we want to do, whatever our God says is what we will believe, those types of the faithful are rare. Here, the Lord of Christianity, Jesus Christ himself, words from a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 7 to lead us into our passage tonight. Matthew seven thirteen and 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Verse 14, 4, if you do not know this verse, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Narrow, hard, few, those who find it are few. Those who find what? The way to eternal life, the way of salvation, the way of God, the Christian way. Those who find life in the discipleship of following Christ. Those who find that are few. And so, as we study our Bibles and see what Jesus calls Christianity, the religious system that is following him, those who will commit to following after Christ and observing all that he has commanded us, The people who would hear that and take that seriously or take it to heart are few. They are rare. And that is most clear when we look at a passage like we have tonight. Jesus is not even into the middle section of the Sermon on the Mount. He's still in the beginning where he is saying, you have heard, you have heard, you have heard. Read with me, if you will, at Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And and, and if you greet only your brothers, What more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the passage at the end of chapter 5 that is so well known. I hope you're familiar with it. It includes in it, love your enemies. This is that passage. This is the love your enemies passage. This is also the passage that ends with, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The super high calling of Christianity. It begins, as so many have, you have heard. Verse 21, you have heard. Verse 27, you have heard. Verse uh, 33, you have heard. Verse 38, you have heard. We've seen this over and over again. And what our Lord Jesus is doing in this sermon is he is recalling what the Old Testament says and the teaching that comes from it. So he's calling to mind the scriptures, the word of God. But the Jews and the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes, had taken the teaching and distorted it. Remember this morning when I read from 2 Timothy 2 and it said that some had swerved away from the truth? You remember that? It was towards the end. You might have tuned out by the end. But you remember that? It's very common in Christianity. It's very, very common for church people. It's very common for the religious to not be sincere. That's why the Bible says few. Notice that Jesus in Matthew 7 says that those who find it are few. I'm saying they are rare. Well, guess what? The whole world seems to be religious, right? The amount of people that actually say that they don't believe is very minimal. So what we're getting at here is that the people who actually do know and believe and love Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is very, very few. The reason why is because we don't commit ourselves to following him. So Jesus here recalls what the Old Testament says and what they had taught based off of what the Old Testament says. And he says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Leviticus 19 is where you find this quote of loving your neighbor. That is absolutely in the Bible, but the second half of that is not in the Bible, okay? When it says there that you should hate your enemy, that is not a quote from God, Jesus is quoting in Matthew 5.43 what the bad teachers of Judaism are teaching their people. That to love your enemy goes along with, uh, to love your neighbor, sorry, goes along with hating your enemy. It's unbelievable how close this hits to home among so many people we know. We will create in our minds this idea that there is a place to hate people for certain reasons. This is not according to God. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy is not in the Bible. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy is not in the Bible. This right here is in the Bible, but it is, a it is Jesus quoting what the bad teachers say. You need to understand that. You need to understand that. If you go back to Leviticus 19.18, 18, it does say, love your neighbor. Listen to one commentator. He says, It is astonishing that the scribes fell into so great an absurdity so to limit the word neighbor to benevolent persons or good people. For nothing is more obvious. Listen, you would think. Nothing is more obvious or certain that God, in speaking of our neighbors, includes the whole human race. Shame on us 
Shame on me, shame on you, shame on these scribes, shame on anybody who can create in your mind that it is good for you to hate somebody, right? I've been tempted to say it on a Sunday morning, but just recently in our town, just over on Hurstbourne Taylorsville, we had a white man kill two black people because of the color of their skin. And he dared say that, right? That is hate. God hates that. He hates that. And I will assure you right now that God does not hate those two people that were killed because of the color of their skin. He does not hate them for that. Okay? There was no reason for that man or for anybody else or for us to hate people for that. Now, along those lines, may we remind ourselves that we too may also be tempted to hate people and not take it to the extent that he did. We too may hate people at times. and We may not go and shoot them, but we may hate them still. God is not that way. God loves people. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That is wrong. So verse 44, Jesus says, but I say to you, and we're familiar with this. He's been doing this through all of chapter 5. We've heard many sermons on it. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. At the beginning of the sermon, when I said Christianity is rare, true Christ followers are rare. Now I pointed out the words narrow, hard, and few. You need to see this now because there are many Christians in the world, but there are not many people that love their enemies, if we're honest. There are not. Because whether we are Christians that are failing to be Christian or whether we're not really Christian, there is so much self and so much pride in us and there is so much that we are trying to uh, guard ourselves and live for our own defense rather than for God's defense or rather for God's glory that we stop being godly in this regard. But make no mistake about it, Matthew 5, chapter 44 in your Bible says, love your enemies. Does everybody see that? That is the calling of Christianity. If you do not want to love your enemies, you cannot follow Christ. If you do not love your enemies, you either repent or you're not a Christian. Narrow, hard, few. Love your enemies. Now, I thought about really riding this point hard here, and I'm not going to, but I just want to say this, okay? A huge majority of what we have created as our enemies shouldn't even be our, our enemies, okay? So many of the enemies that we think of are, are enemies that we shouldn't be having as enemies, right? If you're a jerk to your neighbor and now they are your enemy, that should not be the case. You should repent, go over there, apologize, and start loving them, Okay? So many of the things that we're calling enemies aren't really enemies. You understand? This that Jesus is talking about here is talking about a situation where you are so living for the glory of God and living righteously that people hate you for the wrong reasons. Let me point you back to chapter 5, uh, verse 10. Look at chapter 5, 10. This is in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who, pers- who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Okay, So there's a whole category 
of persecuted for righteousness' sake, right? We may not know much about that, but there's a category there, right? Jesus sees that as a blessed situation to be in, and he even calls it, yours is the kingdom of heaven, okay? So that's, not, that's there. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So not only does Jesus not say, you better fight back, you better go get your gun, you better go get your stick, you better do something. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, that's a blessed state to be in. If people are treating you wrongly because of your commitment to God, then that's a good thing, Jesus says. Not an easy thing, but he's already said that it's hard, y'all. We know this. It will be hard. I have found myself so many times at this stage of my life, whether it's parenting, whether it's coaching, whether it's pastoring, whether it's living in the community, that I have conversations that go like this almost every single week. Yeah, it's hard. I'm sorry. It, It is hard. I know it's hard. But it's worth it. You know that, right? Yeah, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But it's worth it. This is Christianity. The real, true, authentic Christianity. Narrow, hard, few. Blessed are you when people are this way towards you. Verse 12 of Matthew 5, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is not even anything new. We have a whole history, an entire church history of people being treated wrongly because of their faith in Christ. That's the way it goes. We've already heard a sermon on that. So how do you... Now, here's the thing. In, in, the, in, the, in the Beatitudes there, he's talking about how you handle it, right? How you handle it yourself. It'll be hard, but it's worth it. You get over here to the end of chapter 5, verse 30, 43, and now he's saying, love those people. Now he's saying, love those people. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. John MacArthur says this was no innovation since even the Old Testament teaches that God's people should do good to their enemies. So Jesus is now not making something new. Jesus is pointing out that what they were teaching the Old Testament says is not what God is like. Remember that the whole purpose of us being so committed to the word of God is that we would understand God. That we would know God. That we would know the heart of God. That's why we are so biblical. That's why we're so committed to it. For about three months now, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, actually way more than three months, for a long time, we've been going through the book of Hebrews on Wednesdays and Thursday mornings, right? And we're always pointing out that Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. It's the only book in the New Testament we don't know the author. And we point out that that's not that big of a deal because it's a sermon. It's not a letter. It's not a gospel. It's a sermon. And the purpose of a sermon, I remind them this every Wednesday and Thursday morning, the purpose of a sermon is to take the word of God, explain it, so that people will trust in Christ. It's not just talk about the Word of God. It's not just talk about Jesus. 
It is to take the truth of the Word of God, explain it in such a way that people are turning to Christ, that people are trusting in Christ. That is our hope. We believe the Bible. And so, in this uh, first century with Jesus' living, you have the Jews teaching all of this stuff, and they've taken the Old Testament, they've taken the law, they've taken Leviticus, where it says, love your neighbor, and they've turned love your neighbor into such a way that it's love certain people, and they've redefined neighbor. Apparently, this was really a big deal because you're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? The priest walked by and ignored the guy. The Levite walked by and ignored the guy. But the Samaritan helped the person. Do you remember the question that led to the parable of the Good Samaritan? Who's my neighbor? This was really a big deal. We're so bad, listen, at living in a way that loves our enemies that Jesus is dealing with it quite often, right? Well, guess what? It is so natural to the sinner to hate their enemies. It is so natural to the carnal to hate their enemies. I know people, you know people, and perhaps even in our flesh we are this way. There are a whole world of people that can't wait to be crossed so they can actually hate their enemies, right? There are a lot of people that hope somebody punches them so that they can punch them back. There are a lot of people that hope somebody cusses them so that they can cuss them back, right? This is the world that we live in, right? You can stand at line in Walmart, and if somebody dare pushes somebody, you'll have a brawl. Go to a school and watch what happens if somebody would to dare do anything and watch what it turns into. This is the way it is. How many fights have you seen on TV or even in your families where, well, she shouldn't have said that. Now, here's one thing you don't do. You don't talk to me like that, right? I've been in my life to multiple funerals where this is broken out in families. We are so carnal and sinful and ungodly that if somebody dare crosses us, we are so eager to hate our enemies. That's not even an enemy, but you know what I'm saying. But here, the Bible teaches to love people. Love your neighbor, and your neighbor would be anybody. And they had so distorted that into love your enemy, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's what they had changed it to. Verse 43, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's not right. That Jesus now brings up the way of God. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. To which, as I've said, MacArthur says, this is nothing new. The whole Bible teaches this. I want to read to you, you don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, you can write it down, from Proverbs 25, okay? Listen to this, from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. This is the word of God, this is in the Old Testament, this is a long time before Jesus was on the earth. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him water to drink. This is the way of God. This is what God is like. So if somebody is cussing you out, somebody is hating you, somebody is doing this to you, you should still want to be doing good to them, still want to love them. This is what the Bible teaches. Verse 22 goes on to say, For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. One commentator says, as metals are melted by placing fiery coals on them, so is the heart of an enemy softened 
by such kindness. If God in saving us has caused us to know God and all of his glory and goodness, one could totally understand that it would be their desire for other people to know God's glory and goodness. And it is a very logical step that showing people what God is like is the means for people understanding God as opposed to showing people what God is not like. And hence we have this whole New Testament idea of our witness, right? Uh, uh, Hurting our witness or causing somebody to stumble or being a bad witness or not reflecting God or let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works. This whole category that we have of living outwardly for God so that people could see, this not only includes nice people, this includes mean people. This not only includes your neighbor that you love, but it also includes your neighbor that doesn't love you. Right? This includes enemies as well. And this is an Old Testament concept. This is the way God is, as we see from Proverbs 25. Love your enemies. Well, in Romans 12, if you're ready for this, Paul quotes that proverb. Paul quotes that proverb in Romans 12. Listen to what he says. Beloved, Remember the words, narrow, hard, and few, right? Listen to this. Paul, in the book of Romans, Romans 12, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Is that rare or what? Never avenge yourselves. Never is it right for you to go and take revenge. Never is it right for you to go and say, oh, I'm going to show them. Never. Not if you want to be in Christ. Not if you want the world to know how great God is. Not if you want people to understand what God is like. And the heart of the believer is to reflect God. May they see Christ in us, right? How many songs have you heard on the radio that we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus, right? That we want the world to see Jesus in us, right? We love all of this stuff. Well, does the, do those songs, does that heart, does that prayer understand that Jesus' way is the narrow, is the hard, is the few? And it doesn't just mean being nice to the people in town, but it includes the enemies. It includes those who persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. It includes the people in your family or down the street or in your community that hate you, that can't stand you, and are very quick and easy to tell anybody anything about you so that they would think worse of you. Paul says, never avenge yourselves. He goes on to say, but leave it to God. Leave it to the wrath of God For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary of avenging yourself, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And we've heard that before. That is a direct quote from Proverbs 25 that I just read to you. Never avenge yourselves. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament from Romans 12. Never avenge yourselves. 
So you turn back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 44, and Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why does Christianity insist on never avenging ourselves? Why does Christianity insist on loving our enemies? Why do we say, turn the other cheek? Why do we say, man, it has been a really good day. How was your Sunday? Well, it was a blessed day. Why? Well, because others were reviling me, they were persecuting me, and they were uttering all kinds of evil against me falsely on my account. I'm just rejoicing and being glad because my reward is in heaven. This is what Jesus says. Why? Well, he goes on, verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. To be Christian is to live like God lives. To follow Christ is to walk in the ways that God wants us to walk. To be godly. What is God like toward his enemies? That's the question. You remember years ago when it got real popular, the WWJD bracelets? And like all things, it became so like popular that everybody wore them and so people stopped wearing them? Good question, though. What would Jesus do in this situation? What would Jesus do in this situation? That's the question, but he goes on to answer it in verse 45. He says, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. If somebody was being evil to you and you had the power to give them daylight, wouldn't you say, not today? If you're going to act like that, no, I'm not. My kids asked me if they could play on the iPad yesterday. I said, no, no. If you're going to act like that, no, you're not playing on the iPad. Not until you learn to be better and act nicer to me and do that and not be mean to your sister. No, you're not playing on the iPad ungodly. Now, there's a way to go about parenting. You know what I mean. But the Bible gives us the example here of what is Jesus like to his enemies? What is God like to his enemies? And it says this. He still makes the sun rise on them even though they're evil. Even though they hate God, he gives them sunlight. He still provides for them. He is still such a good God to them. Then it asks another one. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Whether you're right or wrong, whether you're fair or not fair, whether you are good or evil, God still provides for you. Rain you are dependent upon. You need it for your farm. You need it for your crops. You need it for so many things, and God still gives it. What is God like to his enemies? He is loving to them. Psalm 145 says the Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to all. There is nobody who could say, God doesn't love me. God loves. God loves. And God wants his people to love. We are not to qualify who we are to love and who we aren't to love. From there... He starts to argue back. Verse 46, he says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
not really accomplished anything. You've not done anything that was difficult or no challenge. You've not stepped up to the plate. You've only done what comes so easy and natural. You've loved those who love you. He points out, do not even the tax collectors do the same? You know by now that in the New Testament, tax collectors have such a bad reputation of being unfair and being abusive to people with their taxes. Matthew, who's writing this gospel, was a tax collector that had come to Christ. So Matthew, in writing this, is very familiar with the uh, deceptive and, and deceitful ways that the tax collectors had. He points out that even tax collectors are good to some people. And you know that, right? There's some really, really bad people out there, but they're good to some people, Right? I know some people that are liars, and I know some people that are thieves, and I know some people that are, that are bad, but to some people, they're great. You ever heard somebody say, never done anything wrong to me, right? Well, Jesus points out, do not let that be your low expectation of the supernatural calling of living a spirit-filled life that is called Christianity. No, Christianity has an extremely high calling. Christianity's expectation is literally higher than you can attain. We're going to get there. You're to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Christianity raises the bar to not doing your best. Christianity raises the bar to not, hey, none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. Christianity raises the bar and says, if you want to be a Christian, you are to live like God. What people should experience from us is the ways of God. That includes how we treat even our enemies. He even asks this huge question, which sounds so killer to me. Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? What a question. I love that question. That sounds so much like a, like a, a competitor type of question. Emily, what more are you doing than everybody else? You think you're Christian? First Baptist Faraday, you think you're Christian? What more are you doing than everybody else, right? I laugh every year at Christmas time when Salvation Army gets the bell out in front of Walmart. You know what I mean? You know what their slogan is? Doing the most good. It's on their sign. The arrogance, right? Doing the most good. Are they doing more good than other people? Yet, think about this. This is an idea here that Jesus is asking to the people who really want to follow him, what more are you doing than the people who are doing good who do not know me? This is a question for churches. Because while our world seems to be getting further and further away from God, there are lots and lots of people who are striving to do good. Striving to do good. There are. I was very encouraged just recently when I read a story about a Muslim coalition that raised $100,000 to help end some disaster relief. A group of Muslims. Lots of people are out there doing good, right? I got neighbors all up and down our street that are so quick to help us. They're not believing in God. They're not trusting in Christ, right? I know people around here, I could call up right now and ask them to do anything. If I said, hey, I'm sick and I'm in bed, I need some Gatorades, could you bring me some? They'd bring me some. If I said, hey, I'm not going to be able to pick my kids up from school, could you take them? They'd gladly take them after school. They'd feed them dinner. They'd do anything for us, Right? The calling of Christianity is narrow, hard, few. It is not treat people the way you want to be treated. It's not treat people the way you want them to treat you. It's not only that. It is 
the hard situations. It is the ugly situation, the painful situations. It is our enemies, and it asks the question, what more are you doing than others? Let me remind you that Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. He writes to the church in Ephesus, be imitators of God. How? By walking in love. That's what it says, Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God, walk in love. Well, who? Love who? Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, everybody. Everybody. Love your enemies. He asks another question in verse 47. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then he ends verse 48 with, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Bible calls us to love everybody. It tells us that is hard. And then it tells us this. The calling of God is not cheapened. God does not look down to us and say, well, you really didn't love your enemies, but you tried, so come on. No. The standard is perfection. The standard is complete righteousness. That's already been preached several times. If you look at verse 20, it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The standard is not lowered by God. So how do we attain it? Only through Jesus. Jesus loves his enemies. I don't know why Joe had that scripture reading there for the call to worship. Jesus on the cross with the thieves there. But if we had to guess, it was because even hanging on the cross, they mocked him. They reviled him, right? And even then, Jesus loved. Jesus died for those who were making fun of him, who were laughing at him, who were joking at him, who were being mean to him. Jesus perfectly obeyed his father, loved his enemies. And this is the calling of Christianity. On your own, in the flesh, you will not do it, you cannot do it, and you don't want to do it. But in Christ, may God give us a heart that says, we want to love. We want to love people. It may not even come easy. The point here is that there are a lot of situations where love comes easy. But when love doesn't come easy, that's still what we do. For more than avenging ourselves, we want to represent I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. My good friend Woody, who is a missionary that we support and pray for, he's on our prayer sheet, he's a missionary in France with the IMB. He was one year behind me in high school, and he was a phenomenal soccer player, got to play in the state tournament. We hosted a game at my high school. I didn't know anything about soccer at the time, uh, but we all went because we went to church together, and we loved Woody, and we were proud of him, and he was a big-time player. 
We were up in the bleachers, and we had our shirts off and chest painted and all that. We had Woody painted on our chest. It was really fun. I was in high school. It was great. High school state tournament game. And Woody was out there. And Woody's redhead. And I, you remember this morning I talked about being hot-headed and quick-tempered? Woody's hot-headed and quick-tempered. He is. And uh, great, great friend and brother. And in that game, he and a player about got into a fight, and they came face-to-face. And the player from the other team, everybody could see it, spit right in his face. It was really, really bad, really bad. And so Woody lost it. He was about to go crazy, and people were holding him back, and he wanted to fight that guy. And I can't remember who got yellow cards or red cards or kicked out of the game. I don't remember any of that. But I remember that once that happened, and Woody, like, erupted, and it turned into a big brawl type of thing out there on the field, a big fiasco. I remember Woody's dad, Larry, who was a great man of God, came, like, running down the bleachers. He went to church with us. He ran down the bleachers, got all the way to the fence there, almost to the field. And I remember when we saw Larry running down, we took off running too. We all went to church with him. Now, this was 17, 18-year-old Josh, a little bit different than 38-year-old Josh, all right? So we all came running down the bleachers too, and we got there. And, and in my mind, I was thinking, we're about to have a big fight out here. Let's do it. We're about to go get on this field. Nobody spits in our face. We're about to have a fight here. And that's literally what all of us teenage boys, church boys, were thinking, I said, Larry, I, I, I literally looked over to Larry. He's right there. He's yelling at Woody. He calls him Chris because that's his name. I said, Larry, Woody's about to tear him up. Let's go. And Larry looks at me and he says, Josh, Chris better not. Chris better treat that man how Jesus would. I have never forgotten that. I want to be a dad like that. A fiery, competitive soul, a dad in the bleachers that above all else loves Jesus. If Jesus can be spit in the face, you can too. If Jesus can be persecuted, you can too. If Jesus can die for God's glory, we can too. We don't fight Narrow, hard, few, but the reward is worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We should know that if Jesus preaches a sermon, God, it's going to be better than most sermons. Father, we confess it's narrow, we confess it's hard, and we confess that maybe there are few, but Father, we want to be in that few. Holy Spirit, we turn to Jesus, we ask for forgiveness and mercy, and we pray that you would work in our lives. Oh, Father, make us like you. God, I don't know if we have enemies. I don't. But if we do, may we love them because you love them. God, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.